All right, welcome to episode 67 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we welcome back a very special guest. We welcome back Samir Chopra. He's a professor of philosophy at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. He's the author of several books, including A Legal Theory for Autonomous Artificial Agents. And today we're going to be discussing the history of psychedelic use, its potential benefits according to recent research, and its dangers. Welcome, Samir. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me on again. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming back on again. And so Samir, going into, I guess, just diving into the topic sort of head on. So can you tell us a little bit about your background in psychedelic research and especially what got you sort of started in it and what made you interested in the field altogether? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think one really good way to answer it and to sort of cut to the chase is, is that a a large part of the reason why I study philosophy today or why I got into philosophy was um, because of my experience with psychedelics. And, um, you know, sometimes when I say this to people, you know, it, it sort of induces giggles in the audience. It's like, ah, uh, you know, philosophers and psychedelics, and it almost sounds like a cliche, but, and yet at the same time, it just makes perfect sense that um, if you're curious about the nature of reality, if you're curious about, the relationship between our thoughts and the world outside of us. If you're curious about the nature of our consciousness and you look at the history of psychedelics, these sorts of questions are sort of at the forefront of the kinds of experiences that people have had in psychedelics, the kinds of queries that have taken people into the world of psychedelics and the kinds of insights that people claim to have had consisting of answers to precisely these questions. What's the nature of reality? What's the relationship between my mind and the rest of the world? Um, what's the nature of my consciousness? And these are, I would say, three very central questions in philosophy. And these are three questions that are very central to the psychedelic enterprise. And, you know, the thoughtful psychonaut, the, the, the person that takes psychedelics and really thinks through his psychedelic experience. And I think uh, very importantly does what I would call um, reintegration or revisitation or you know it's not just the tourism of the trip but it's also the coming back home and figuring out what what the journey meant and i think those sorts of things go well with a philosophical disposition and so to return this all the way back to where i started answering your question i one of the reasons i studied philosophy was because some of the ways in which i was curious about the kinds of questions that philosophers engaged in, but also questions that were sparked by my psychedelic experiences at the time. And it also played a huge role in my mind, uh, you know, going back to something we talked about on the last podcast when I was here, when I was grieving, when I was actually anticipating my mother's death, because mm -hmm. she was a terminally ill patient. And when I processed her death um, afterwards, in both these, um, both these experiences, I would say, uh, my, my psychedelic uh, experiences had a role in helping me understand what was going on. And um, I think played a significant role. And I think at that time I, I, I was, you know, I was very, very intensely curious. I, I read in, you know, into the history of psychedelic usage across cultures, across time, across, um, I, I learned of its interactions with philosophy. And of course, you know, at the time that this, that I was engaged in this kind of reading, you know, in the mid 1990s, you know, psychedelics were this illegal underground phenomena, uh, you know, as they had been for a long time. And um, part of the reason why the history was so fascinating for me was precisely because it had had this strong connection with psychiatric research, with 
you know, with, you know, with psychotherapeutic considerations. Um, and it seemed like a very commonsensical sort of connection to make that, that, a that a substance that helped you explore consciousness that according to all reports, all sincere reports brought back by those that had experienced psychedelics was giving them acute, profound <clears throat> insight into the nature of consciousness and their, and their relationship to what we perceive as reality, that this was a, you know, this is a sort of a, a sort of a golden doorway into this world of exploration, research, introspection, guided research, guided introspection. Um, and yet, you know, as we all know, it was shut down by, I think, you know, but something I can only describe as a kind of a paranoid, hysterical, ill-motivated governmental response to make it illegal. And, you know, and, and understanding that and sort of then understanding it's, you know, it's, it's possible, it's possible political significance, it opened up other philosophical dimensions of this to me. And then as, you know, in, in the last few years, I, I would say starting in the last, uh, you know, ever since I first took, uh, ever since I first thought about these experiences and, and talked to many other people who had undertaken them, I think I became very interested in its therapeutic potential. I became very interested in its therapeutic potential for people that were, that were, that were grief stricken. That was my, my, my initial point of entry in helping to understand our relationship with death, which grew out of uh, psychedelic insights into the nature of our consciousness and our body and our physical being and, and the rest of the world outside. And can you tell uh, us a little bit about that? About yeah, some of the like, uh, what, what were your experiences like and, and what did they teach you exactly? Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I had uh, several of these insights. I think one was, you know, around the time of my mother's death and the other was about nine years ago when I was, um, um, when I was in Amsterdam. And I think on these two times, you know, there's something that is always reported in, which is, I think, universal to the psychedelic experience. The, and in many, and, and, and I think it, it, it unites the psychedelic experience with what I call the poetic vision, the sense of cosmic oneness, unity. Um, you know, Rabindranath Tagore said, he said, you know, I became a poet the day I realized that all was one. Mm -hmm. And he said, after that, I could only write poetry. That was the only way I could try and capture what had come alive within me was to, was to express it in poetry. And I think that, that very experience when I thought about what death entailed, when I, when, I, when, I, when I thought about death in conjunction with that feeling, I re-understood death. I, I reinterpreted death. I, I understood death not as, not as a destruction, not as, a, not, as a, not as an extinction, but I understood it as a kind of a transformation. I understood it as a kind of a, as a, kind of a reabsorption as a kind of redistribution of myself, as a, as a kind of, um, that there was a particular role that I had played with respect to all of the world before then. You know, I had, you know, to, you know, to actually quote, uh, to quote a lyric from the Grateful Dead, I had become the eyes of the world, right? For the time that I was alive. And now if I was gonna die, I would not be the eyes of the world, at least in the ways that I understood my old eyes, but I would, you know, I would, I would go back to being part of the world in the way that I'd been before. Yeah. So I wasn't being destroyed. I was somehow, 
I was being reabsorbed, drawn into, and you know, these, 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 these metaphors were, were abundant and wonderful, you know, being reabsorbed, redrawn back, um, taken back into the bosom of, you know, the enveloping uh, mother earth in some ways, you know, there was a, I didn't feel like I was going to be lost. I, I felt I was actually going to go home. I remember actually saying to my wife um, at that time, I said, you know, actually I used to grieve at the thought that we would be separated by death. Mm. And uh, I said, actually, I realized that there's actually nothing to grieve for because we're not going anywhere. Mm. And, and I felt it in what, you know, what William James calls this noetic sense. I knew it. It wasn't, oh, I thought it or I speculated it. I knew it. And it was, yeah. And, and, and for me at that moment, it was authoritative. And the, the, the emotional signature of that persists. So I think, I think re, being able to reinterpret death, recast it, suffuse it with some understanding as, as opposed to just, you know, it being this black monolith, right? All of that for me was very transformative. And it's interesting because when usually when a lot of times people um, either before they take psychedelics or, you know, kind of when they're just thinking about them or even just in general, I think people, they're a lot of the times afraid of non-existence. And so for them, the idea is that, and I often hear this in my session. So, I mean, I've talked about this extensively, I think another, you know, sort of on other platforms about sort of existential dread and the idea that a lot of times people are afraid of non-existence. And so it's like rationally what we go through in therapy is helping them understand that non-existence really isn't that scary. I mean, it's sad because obviously your consciousness is not going to be in the same way it was before, or maybe not yes. at all. But the yeah. thing is that people a lot of times struggle with the notion of non-existence. And then, yeah. so Samir, when you were taking psychedelics, did you feel like non-existence wasn't as terrifying for you then? Or did you know, I, yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's, it's a question that has a sting in its tail because I think the actual moments of self-dissolution and quote unquote non-existence for this I, for this mm-hmm. I perspective. Mm. I don't think I actually experienced those moments. I didn't experience those moments. Samir was gone during those moments. And I know they have happened on these trips because there's been dissolution of time. I think I, with my ego intact, Samir, approaching a point where certain cognitive anchors that I have to my, you know, to my constructed personality, when those anchors start to fall apart, mm. I think that's when we experience what, you know, Huxley described as the hell of the psychedelic experience, which is that you feel yourself dissolving and you feel non-existence approaching. The actual non-existence is not something that you will experience, not something that you will experience, right? But the sense of this ground crumbling from under you, the, the trap door opening, so to speak. You know, I, I always think that um, I achieved a level of what I would call, you know, intense meta-referentiality, where I could be thinking about myself and then catching myself thinking about thinking about myself. And all of a sudden, these sort of infinite mirrors would open up. Mm-hmm. And I would realize that, you know, that sort of tremendous sense of the conventionally constructed self that any of these thoughts could be me. Mm-hmm. You know, I could appoint any of these thoughts as the I and start and start becoming the guardian of all my other thoughts and then claiming them as mine. Mm-hmm. That was completely arbitrary. And when you realize that, it's, it's a, it is terrifying. 
Because yep. you feel yourself disappearing, right? Uh, would you say that uh, that crumbling feeling, um, it's almost akin to facing your own death? Because how I mean this is, yes. uh, for example, if, while you are encountering that, that feeling, that dissolution, mm -hmm. if you choose to surrender to it, that may lead into that better experience of yes. the psychedelic experience. Yeah, uh, yeah. Otherwise, if you resist it, that may lead to that hellish, nightmarish realm. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That, because, that's because you're essentially trying to hang on to this very elusive, slippery, anchoring thought, right? Remember, and you, and you, and you, and you have this insight that actually what I'm calling myself is that one of these thoughts that's kind of flitting around has appointed itself master and it is surveying all the others and it is saying i am having that thought and it is claiming as its own content what the other thought is and you realize this is completely arbitrary right and so you feel like oh shit i this thing this you know this this egotistical owner and possessor of all these things this is actually just a little fiction that one of my thoughts has made up for itself and it is parading around as the master of everything else in my mental domain, mm -hmm. but it is, there is no such master or ruler or, you know, <laughs> you really feel that I go and that as that I goes, all that, all the hooks of identity you had into it, you know, whether they're emotional bonds with people, you know, your job, your home, your income, your, your sense of achievement, these things, they become ephemeral they're they're sort of vanishing and you really lose your sense of who you are and you feel non-existence approaching and it's terrifying and i think and i think you're right to put it in that sense of ease or break because as you try to hold on to it it becomes terrifying and you have to in some ways either be distracted by something or you have to be prepared to just go along for the ride and you know close your eyes or you know, there's all these physical maneuvers to make yourself more comfortable so that you can, um, because the actual point of ego dissolution is actually experienceless. Mm. You, you're not there to experience it. Samir's mm. not there. And then there comes another point when all of a sudden you're back. You know, the, the kaleidoscope reassembles and you're back. And something serves as an anchor to connect you with something that's happening, you know, maybe a sound or something. And then you're back and you, you know, then you might, if you were alert enough in a controlled environment, you might check the time to see how long, you know, you had been gone, so to speak. You know, if you could press a button and say, well, I'm, I'm like freaking out now, but I'm relaxing. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about neuroscientific investigations of these things about how long the loss of self was experienced. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, I think I think it's that it's that headlong kind of slide towards a loss of everything that you knew and you held dear, which and of, and of, and of course that's what your constructed sense of self is, and as that vanishes, I think that's I think yeah. that's terrifying. And you know, I wonder from a psychotherapeutic standpoint, from the people who lose a sense of self, you know, um, obviously something that you definitely talk about pretty often about sort of hanging on to the ego and the ego's sort of assessment of itself and its desire to see itself only in sort of a bright light instead of, you know, kind of acknowledging any of its flaws. So, mm -hmm. Or a victim identity too, yeah. actually. It's, okay, it so it's black like and white, too. right? It's either you're like sort of like this victim and, you know, you should be ashamed or you're sort of like this great person and you need to sort of, you know, kind of put yourself... Or up. any narrative you identify with or or belief but right. 
yeah. sure. No, yeah. I got you. I like that you brought that up. So what I'm thinking is, um, when it comes to that, do you think that in psych- in terms of like taking, um, in terms of taking any of your psychedelics, let's say medications, do you feel as though the person once they kind of lose that sense of self, or at least they lose it to some extent, that it kind of makes it more likely that they'll look at that sort of mirror in themselves, that they'll kind yeah. of acknowledge the sense of shame, or they'll acknowledge potential regrets, all of those things that have been hidden for you know God knows how many years, but now all of a sudden, because let's say your attachment to yourself isn't where it was before. Now you can kind of look at it from a bird's eye view and you can say, maybe, you know what, this isn't something that maybe I should be so ashamed of that I need to hide it from. Yeah. 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 You know, if, if I could use a spatial metaphor for the self, we are holding together a very tight network of connections and associations and valuations that make up myself. So mm-hmm. who I am right now is someone that gets angry at particular things and happy at certain kinds of things because, you know, I hold certain views and opinions on these, on these topics. And so this kind of constellation of beliefs and, you know, emotional attachments to them is me, right, in some sense. Mm-hmm. And I would say that in the psychedelic experience, what you have is a kind of, is a kind of shaking up and a kind of breaking up of this into something much looser where your your position with respect to these things is also displaced right so you see yourself from different perspectives the kinds of emotional affects that you have with parts of yourself now are redistributed right you come to you know for example i think a very common experience on the psychedelic experience is that people come to see certain aspects of their life as suffused with a certain kind of beauty that they hadn't seen before and this isn't just a simple matter of, you know, people finding out, you know, that that painting in the room looks great or, you know, the music that they had sounds great. No, I think it's sometimes that they realize that the love and caring that they have in their lives is actually a quite an amazing and wondrous thing, right? They're able to step back and say, look at this amazing thing. I've been with this woman for 20 years. We've gone through so many things. We've had all these fights and Yet we're here together. There's something magical about all of this. And that's just the, you know, the, the, the emotional halo that settles over some of these relationships in our life, which we haven't sort of turned to look at and been amazed by, right? I think that just, I think that really kind of reorders, redistributes, reconfigures, re, um, you know, it's like reframing between parts of ourselves get, get reconstructed somehow. And so the self that emerges on the other side is, I think, I think, I think that's why people feel that something quite significant has touched them because the emotional affect that they had with, you know, with the intellectual components of their mind have now been changed, right? Their, um, their beliefs aren't just like flat anymore. They're charged with a certain kind of emotional content to them because they have, um, whatever the physical grounding of this, right? But the fact is that as far as our minds are concerned, we have had a very intensely emotional experience, one which has had a cognitive counterpart as well, right? And so um, depending, upon our, depending upon our level of comfort with the, with the aspects of the experience that are frightening, you know, we might withdraw from some of them and yet, and yet, and yet visit other parts of ourselves, you know, which people often find very pleasurable, you know, the, the party experience or, oh, it was just fun. And that's, and that's fine in its own way, because it also causes us to revisit the things that we enjoy or to find new taste in them or to, 
or to find out what our, you know, what our hedonic limits are and so on and so forth. And these are all valuable investigations into ourselves. but they all involve, I think you're right, to go back to your original insight, they all in, involve in some sense a kind of a rejiggering of the self in, in varying quantities and modalities with the, you know, with the extreme, of course, being a kind of profound dissolution of the self and, um, and the, and, and the most minor one being just, you know, a kind of shakeup of the sensory spectrum in some sense, right? You, I mean, that's kind of where you start from, right? And then it has this far reaching spectrum of changes which people can experience and withdraw from depending upon, you know, what their um, experience, dosage, prior mental history and conditions are and, and what they're trying to get out of the experience as well. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, I don't know if you guys would agree, would take the psychedelic medications for more so for kind of purpose for um, for psychological and personal reasons rather than to answer kind of deeper philosophical questions, although I'm sure that happened. So yeah. I could. I, I could tell you, so I'm pretty sure Alan had the same sort of, at least maybe the same sort of experience that I did with this. So I became really interested at the, like, for, uh, yeah, I became interested in psychedelics from Graham Hancock. And so I know you read Supernatural, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Graham Hancock, um, Terrence McKenna, Alan um, Watts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, interestingly enough, Graham Hancock wrote this book, and I think it something. It was along the lines of 2010, 2011, and it was called "Supernatural um, Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind." So, interestingly, even though like Graham Hancock is one of these people who like he believes in Atlantis and sort of he well, he kind of sought out to prove in the spiritual or I guess of the spiritual or whatever. But the thing is, in the kind of journey that he went through, he actually ended up seeing and talking to his deceased father. So, what at least maybe I'm wrong if I don't. I read the book a while ago. So so maybe that was his intention, but I do know he's kind of really heavily philosophical. So, but as he got into the journey, I'm not necessarily sure that he got spiritual answers, although he may have for my, again, it's a vague memory, but the thing is, I definitely know he kind of like sort of got to make up with his father in some way. There was, was a re reconciliation. Yeah. Right. That yeah. occurred within him. Yeah. And so do you guys feel like, like for the most part, when people are doing that, they're sort of doing it to either overcome some sort of traumatic incident um, to kind of make sense of a prior relationship, maybe make sense of something else that that happened to them? Uh, you know, all three of those examples that you mentioned are, in, interestingly enough, um, the three most prominent examples that I've heard from friends of mine. Um, one of my friends, um, survivor of uh, sexual trauma, um, was in therapy for many years, took medication for many years. Um, then over the course of a couple of years, went for several ayahuasca ceremonies including uh, some in New York, some in South America. And, uh, and she would testify that, you know, it's, you can't really speak quantitatively, but qualitatively that the impact, the significance of the experiences, um, reconciliation, rehabilitation, uh, reintegration, thinking through things, she felt it was as useful as all the years of therapy and medication put together. Uh, a friend of mine, also, you know, similar exactly to the, to the second instance you mentioned of helping them understand past relationships because they're able to revisit them. They're able to ransack their minds in ways that are um, not possible by psychoanalytic methods, for instance. You know, years of analysis of sort of rummaging through my unconscious. And um, I took these psychedelics and they, you know, they took me into this space that allowed me to, you know, as you said, uh, you know, when, when, when people are speaking about having 
communication and connections with past loved ones and so on and so forth very often it's a matter of you know there are there is more to the to the human being or i mean more to the person than just the corporeal self there's memories associations you know all these sorts of things and and like and they're a very rich part of our mind and when we can use those to work through and i think that's one thing that psychedelics do facilitate um i was utterly unsurprised when i heard that something like mdma which is being used for patients who are suffering from post traumatic stress disorder and i think there is a very interesting side application which i think the first time when i heard about mda experiences or you know experienced it myself one of my first reactions was uh, it seems to me that people who are engaged in long term relationships should take this substance together mm-hmm. because uh, it was something that enabled again you know uh, ego dissolution means what that one we we lose certain kinds of vulnerabilities or we become comfortable with them we become more open to others we let others into our emotional space we are welcoming we are more open in terms of talking about hurt about the kinds of ways in which people have hurt us and we are also open to telling people why we appreciate them and i mean you know and these were all experiences that were common to those who you know who took mdma and you know and like and it's and i and i thought it was interesting that mdma was dismissed as a kind of a party chemical mm-hmm. and i thought really only a supremely ignorant culture would think that people taking this chemical at the oldest cultural um you know consciousness raising ritual of all musical festivals mm-hmm. it seemed to me that we were enacting ancient rituals and going to these musical concerts and you know taking these substances that people were actually sending us very strong cultural signals that actually we are connecting with ourselves in ways that are well known to us historically and something that we've been comfortable with psychologically would it be any surprise that in these spaces we would find new ways of bonding with each other and like finding ways of healing relationships people went to these kinds of festivals and often came back and said that you know i had this magical experience with my friends and it was you know people were talking about these things 10 years later it wasn't just that you had a party it was mm-hmm. that people connected with friends in deep and meaningful ways and so i think all three of these i think dealing with traumas dealing with past relationships because they have left either a traumatic or uh, i would say a sort of a, an imprint of conflict in the in the present time and i think dealing with present um present relationships so i think ptsd is a very good example of people dealing with with traumatic experiences and past relationships as well yeah. sometimes those two can be combined in in the in the same situation and i think the and i think the use of mdma for something like couples counseling is a very good instance uh, along with ptsd as well as helping people open themselves up to certain kinds of experience right and i wonder, and I wonder if the underlying mechanism to all of this is empathy so. you know it's it's i do think there is and i think that might also have something to do with the neurophysiological mechanisms of this you know we um the relationship between getting certain sorts of um you know for example you think of something like facial recognition right mm-hmm. so i smile when i see someone that i know because the visual recognition is accompanied with the emotional stimulus of pleasure or joy at having seen the loved one right so these if if these if you know maybe one of the ways in which these chemicals are working is activating these mechanisms in in completely new ways so that the associations between 
certain kinds of recognition and certain kinds of emotional affects are strengthened or amplified, or we are able to dedicate ourselves to them. And as a result, the emotional affect is increased when we're not distracted by other effects. So I think, uh, I think these kinds of, you know, these kinds of very interesting, I would say interactions or influences on personal relationships that are made up of these kinds of affective bonds, I think is a very, you know, I think is a very, uh, it's something that really bears further investigation. And I'm, you know, I'm so happy to see that so much of research is now being done. It's, um, you know, many formal aspects of the psychiatric machinery are sort of getting on board. And I think, you know, psychiatry has a good chance to, I think, you know, redeem itself and, and uh, lead the way in making this, you know, I'm not necessarily lead the way, but, you know, at least bring in parts of the medical establishment on board in terms of having these substances investigated in all sorts of, you know, control trials and experimental settings. And, you know, uh, and of course, and I hope also that, um, you know, that we have the corresponding legal machinery that goes along with this so that people can, you know, people can partake of these in, you know, in ceremonies and, and in, and in, and in, uh, and in gatherings with friends and with, and with others, because, you know, we have a history of cultural connections with these, um, with these substances. And it would be a shame to lose, you know, the accumulated knowledge of, you know, thousands and thousands of years of like human interactions with these substances across cultures. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really fascinating for me now is viewing the interest in psychedelics as a chance to, you know, bridge certain sorts of cultural barriers to enable certain sorts of cultural understandings precisely because of the perspectives that psychedelics enable. Um, and, you know, to do so in a way that is respectful of the accumulated knowledge of, you know, indigenous traditions that have often experimented with these medicines in, um, you know, in, in many different ways. Um, you know, from what I can make out, a lot of the people that are doing some of the ayahuasca ceremonies are quite respectful of the traditions, but, uh, you know, as the phenomena tends to become bigger, I, you know, um, there'll be some need for caution out here so that it doesn't just become something commodified and, you know, um, disrespected, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, usually ayahuasca ceremonies are, are headed by uh, shamans, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 They're you know, I mean, yeah. yeah, I think the, you know, the, the, the formal structure, of course, within, within um, indigenous societies that have, you know, used, you know, um, something like ayahuasca, you know, there's a, there's a formal structure there. There's a relationship of the, of the plant to other parts of the lived life, right? It's not just something that's kind of dropped in the middle of this, you know, it's not like this little sprinkle on addition. It's, it's integrated with other parts of their life. So I think there is a value to realizing what, what that integration is, right? Because, um, you know, as they say that if you are going to interact with the mother plant, you interact in such a way that is, you know what you're getting into and so that the mother plant knows what she's getting into. Um, so I think it's, and I think to have that mindset to go into that experience, I think makes the experience just that much more powerful because it is, because it is framed appropriately for you and whether it's, uh, you know, understanding what is happening to you during the ceremony in terms of the spatial metaphors or the, you know, or the, or the caring metaphors, because they, they have an emotional resonance. If you, if you really do take the metaphors on board, they will affect the content of your experience. Right. And having a, a reverence for the experience itself is very important. If somebody goes into it uh, blind, I mean, that's where it could go either way. You could have that bad trip or yeah, potentially yeah. you could have a good trip, but you, you wouldn't know just doing it yourself. Sometimes it's good to have 
either a sitter or uh, a clinician, uh, which yeah. is interesting because it's becoming more of a mainstream thing. Yeah, yeah, or definitely. like a shaman. Yeah, yeah. and you know, and like I said, uh, you know, because we don't have, you know, you know, it's not like we have formal training programs for shamans. You know, this is this is a classically human thing where people have sort of, you know. Um, Somebody I met at ayahuasca ceremony, you know, he said, I have 28 years of experience in this. You know, I've been going to South America and say, you know, that's that's good enough for me. Right. And so there was this kind of encounter between me and him, you know, mediated by another friend of mine. And I think that's that's how a lot of these human, you know, encounters and settings go. And I think people exercise caution and diligence. And hopefully, as people talk about this, more of the you know, more of the background knowledge or sort of more of what one's framing of the experience should be can be talked about openly. You know, I mean, you know, you use the word of reverence and I think I think reverence and curiosity is very necessary and patience and and I think a willingness to continue to think about this on an ongoing basis, you know, and I think... You know, that- well, and so, and I wonder, right, again, going back to sort of the idea of ego disillusionment, I wonder if, so I, I'm sure you guys know, you know, kind of a cognitive therapy and the framework, we have these sort of core beliefs that we have, you know, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about other people, mm-hmm. beliefs about the world. And often, especially, I mean, in therapy, it's very hard to help people examine them because it's very hard to get people to challenge them. So we're often very stubborn in our thinking and we're so sure of ourselves. Yeah. And so you might have another person, like, let's say I, I might believe something, right? And then Alan on the other side would say, hey, no, man. Like I have all of this information and all of this evidence that says this isn't true. And I'm like, ah, oh, fuck you, Alan. I don't want to hear anything that you have to say. Right. And yeah. that sometimes happens in therapy. And so it's like, you're kind of trying to, you're trying your best and your best and your best. And then sometimes maybe something catastrophic would happen. And then the person comes back and says, oh shit, you were actually right. So yeah. I wonder if in some way that catastrophic thinking is actually these sort of either ayahuasca or whatever other, you know, kind of medicinal experiences these people would have. But if sort of they allow the ego or the stubbornness to break, down where they can actually examine the evidence and so it's like if you're coming from a perspective of um, some sort of personal trauma and you're so sure that you're worthless or that you're kind of unworthy or useless or whatever it is you know kind of you again going back to that bird's eye view you get to empathize with yourself in some way because those barriers might not necessarily be breaking down but broken down but maybe there's a sort of distance between you and your core yeah, belief yeah where you kind of look at them on the outside and say okay i'm going to actually now be able to or i'm going to give myself the chance to examine them whereas like in reality when a person talks to you about them, you're very quick to shut them down. Like I've had this happen in therapy many times where you're trying to show the person like, hey, um, I know you believe this, but here's all of this information that says maybe your belief is only partially true. And they're like, oh, you're just trying to be nice. I don't, you're, you're like a fucking therapist. You're supposed to say these things. I don't care. La, 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 la. I don't need to listen to you. <laughs> right? And so, but I wonder if the kind of ayahuasca experiences is really this in your face experience of reality where it's, it's something, again, I don't know from personally, from personally, personal experiences. So I can't say for sure, but it's just a hunch that there's some part of the mind that says like, no, dude, it's time for you to actually look at this stuff. Yeah. I would say, uh, I would just make that a little bit more precise, precise. I don't know. Precise is the right word, but I would use the language of beliefs and emotions and talking about that, which is that mm-hmm. let's, I mean, think of something like forgiveness, right. And I want to think about why there might be a certain kind of rigidity when it comes to forgiveness, right. Somebody does something wrong to me, right. Mm-hmm. And then I am asked to forgive them and to move on, right? It is explained to me, someone comes to me and says, look, that time when you thought your brother was disrespecting you, when he didn't call you on your birthday, actually that day, this happened. 
right? So you, you kind of told something and there's a belief you have associated with that and you kind of change your belief, but the emotion associated with the belief or the emotion that that belief was supposed to cause and which put in place, that hasn't gotten dislodged from its place. And so what happens is that you kind of do this rational forgiveness, but you haven't done this emotional forgiveness. And so two months later down the line, when you have a fight with that same person, your lack of emotional forgiveness infuses now that conflict with a greater urgency, with a greater pungency than it had before. So what you really need to do is to come to that point of emotional forgiveness. You need to have your rational forgiving and your emotional forgiving come together. Along with the belief, you need to experience the affect of actually forgiving this person. Mm -hmm. I would say a very, very significant part of the psychedelic experience is that belief and affect come together very powerfully. That when you think about people, when you think about various claims, when you when you run together certain kinds of arguments in your mind, when you think of somebody or you perceive certain acts of theirs, there's a kind of an emotional and an affective charge that goes with it that makes it possible for you to forgive people, that makes it possible for you to think of people and to think of them in this way that is like, wow, I've been lifting weights with this guy in the gym for the past five years. And it's always just like, hey, dude, what's up? And we rack the weights, we lift the weights, and then we leave. All right, yo, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> like this guy, he's been helping me be strong for the last five years. You know, he's my fucking rock, this guy. He's my backbone. He's like actually like making me into who I am. And I need to appreciate this. Like I need to really take this on board and not just be so blase about this thing in my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it really honestly happened to me. Like I went to the gym, you know, over the next week, I was like, I was, I was like throwing hugs all around. Mm -hmm. like, you know, these people are making it possible for me to be a better version of myself. Cause like they show up in class, they work out, they cheer me on. I cheer them on. Right. And it's just like, we're just like, you know, it's just, but, the, but they're not just friends. They're just, they're far more significant than that. And you come to realize that. And it's not just this kind of somebody points it out to you and you're like, Oh yeah, I see that. You see it and you feel it mm -hmm. and you see it and you feel it. And when you see it and you feel it, you understand it differently. Mm -hmm you see it differently as a result, right? Yeah. Because it's not just that seeing is believing, it's that believing is seeing, right? So when you are, when you feel differently about this person, it's not the same person anymore. They're a different person. And, and then it also seems like what you're saying from potentially from a psychedelic experience, what you're talking about is essentially a broadened perspective of a relationship that you have with someone yeah. that on the surface just seems to be, you know, this trivial thing, but there's this deeper sort of context to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's, you know, deeper context is a very good way of putting it. You become aware to use, uh, you know, a phrase that's going to sound far out. You mm. become aware of its cosmic significance. Mm. In my life, there are these stations and people are taking me from station to station. And at this moment, mm. you know, the most precious of journeys, this guy's my fellow traveler. And I should... And I should acknowledge that it's not just some dude, you know, mm -hmm. this, is, this is a, this is something invested with importance. Yeah. I felt that in my own uh, experiences, uh, I would say back in my early twenties, uh, I would start to look at other people as, as me, like uh, this person is also me just in a different body, not necessarily my identity, of course, yeah. but it, is that it would allow me to also be able to forgive them or to see yeah. Uh, where they're coming from, or just give them the benefit of the doubt, 
maybe something had happened to them earlier or something like that. Maybe that's why they're being uh, mean or something like that. Or yeah, yeah. Uh, or or it just it's it's strange. It's just changed my experiences with other people, giving them that benefit of the doubt. It, it's led to better relationships. Yeah, Go yeah, on. exactly. Yeah, I think that there was this there's this moment in which if I was ever able to extend to the other person the understanding that I had of myself, you know, I am this, and and I think this happens on the psychedelic experience. You realize you know, to go back to that lyric, you are the eyes of the world. You are the world made consciously manifest at this point in space and time and that you've decided to call this I. And you realize the other person, your girlfriend, your mother, your your friend, the bus driver, that's them too. Mm-hmm. And they too are this locus of that consciousness, just like I'm sort of something on the inside is peeking out from here. That's them too. And I feel all right, I am, we are, we are in this together. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of being, we're in this together, you know, there's, you know, psychonauts will say this to each other when they, you know, when we're talking, you know, somebody says to each other, hey, and I'm talking about trips or whatever. Mm-hmm. Everybody will agree. There's one point during the trip where you will say to the other person who's with you, if you are tripping with someone, you will say, man, I wish everybody in the world yeah. could feel what I'm feeling <laughs> right now. Because you want everybody to get it at the same time. Because you know, if everybody gets it at the same time, we're good, right? Yeah. And anybody who has been into that eye of the storm knows exactly the moment I'm talking about. You turn to the other person, you say, "Dude, everybody should feel this." And that's like that's like really, you feel like, okay, we are, you know, I get it. We're all kind of this is all of us. And that's that connection exactly that, that you were talking about. You, and that makes you, you know, it makes you kinder, more, I don't know, even if it's a brief moment. No, for sure. Uh, there was this one experience I had, um, again, in my early 20s. I, uh, before that, I was a little more, I, I mean, I had read books like uh, Power of Now. I'd learned about being present to the moment. I'd made strides in my own personal journey of just uh, being more with it, being less resistant, less reactive being aware of the ego, such and such, which was great. Uh, I had made great strides in that area. However, I'd still had aspects of myself that were closed off, that uh, mm-hmm. wouldn't allow me to connect with someone or to expose wow. myself more to the world. I was still more to myself, more private. Uh, there were the, uh, these ideas that uh, I wanted to share with other people, but I just didn't have the bravery or I, I couldn't even label it at the time. Yeah. But then I had this uh, one particular experience uh, that was, mm, I won't necessarily go into the details of what necessarily went on, but it was so profound. The, the, the immense uh, feelings, uh, the emotions, the breaking down of uh, certain psychological barriers that by the time I had, uh, well, I wouldn't call this a reintegration, but by the time things had settled down, the very next day I'd called all of my family friends I hadn't spoken to in many years and yeah. said, how are you doing? And there was no, there was zero of this tension that existed before that didn't allow for me to make that step in order to reach out to these people. Yeah. 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 And, and that was beautiful. That was, that yeah. was a nice thing. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you, you didn't use this word, but I think it's lurking in there, which is that you accept yourself in a way that you hadn't before. And when you accept yourself, you want to let others know that there's a new version of you in town. 
one that doesn't just see himself in a different light as a result, but sees other people in a different light as a result. And you want to let others know that because you can sense that people have been trying to tell you something about themselves and you've not been taking it on board because you've not been taking parts of yourself on board. And I think it was amazing to, you know, sometimes it felt like I was just flattering people, but I think it felt, it felt amazing for me to be able to tell people that their presence in my life was this kind of amazing, you know, this shining facet of this diamond that they didn't know they were. You know, I, I remember there was this woman, I remember talking to her and I said to her, I said, you know, it's, there's a very interesting way in which I think about you being someone whom my daughter would admire because of the way in which you conduct yourself. And this, and this friend of mine started crying. And she couldn't believe that I had said to her that my daughter could find her admirable, you know, as a kind of a role model. And I did think she was, I think, you know, she's a very talented woman. She has multiple talents. She's, uh, you know, she's very physically dynamic. You know, she was doing jujitsu and all this kind of stuff. So I thought like, you know, wow, she's, she's tough. She's smart. She's beautiful. There's all these ways in which she's, you know, I think my daughter would find someone admirable here, but I, I never said it to her explicitly, but now I had, and I, and I could say it because it was just, I, I, I had so much to, you know, so much to give away almost, right. In terms of generosity. And it wasn't costing me anything to tell people that there were, you know, these amazing presences in my life. And then to see that happiness in her, right. That was instant confirmation that I'd done the right thing. Yeah, what's so interesting is that sometimes people get shocked by this. And sometimes like when I'll give a person a compliment, they'll say something like, what? Like, what do you really? And um, really? Because, yeah, no <laughs> shit. Like, how did you know this? Like, I feel like I'm not going to say it because you probably already know it. So what am I repeating something that someone else said? Yeah, but it's yeah. interesting how little people actually compliment one another. I've actually found that to be true. Very yeah. rarely. And even amongst like friend groups, like you'll very rarely have that. It's so interesting. Yeah. People are just and afraid. Like, and- and like people will knock it back if you actually do give them a compliment. They're like, ah, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, but it's I, but the interesting thing is like for whatever reason, people just don't compliment each other. And I never really got that. It's like it's as though there's some sort of fear of being exposed or of being vulnerable. Yeah. Like if I say something nice about you, somehow you're gonna be able to later on use that against me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or like, yeah, I, I have somehow conceded some power to you right. by saying, you know, you're a really important person in my life. Oh, fuck. That yeah. Means now <laughs> you're going to take your presence away from me. Let me oh, I'm important, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the appropriate response is, of course, thank you if, you know, yeah. if somebody says that to you. Right. right. And I think, and I think it, 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 it speaks to a certain kind of fear and an insecurity that if you actually alert someone to the fact that they're doing a good thing for you, they will somehow feel that, you know, they should either start charging you for it or they should withdraw it or, you know, some other kind of negative relationship with this good thing will emerge. So maybe the best thing to do is to just kind of keep it, you know, incognito and let Mm -hmm. them continue to do this good thing, you know, sort of completely oblivious to the fact that they are having this great effect on me. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually had that with clients before. So I would have like clients who don't just some of my clients, which is fine. I mean, they don't tell me anything. Right. So it's like therapy just seems to be going. 
they seem to get some benefit from it. I'm obviously getting some benefit from it. Everything's going okay. Um, and then I would have like some, sometimes people refer other people to me. And then so interestingly enough, what happens is, so like, let's say I would untreat them with someone, right? And then that person who they referred me to would say, hey, like, did you know that person thought like your work together was really amazing? And I'm like, what? She never said any of that to me before. Where did that even come from? And what I would ask like, hey, like, you know, what is it that you took away from therapy? What didn't you like? What would you have wanted more of? They're like, no, it was good. It was fine. It was, yeah, it worked. It worked <laughs> okay. well. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess well, I you're the, a satisfied customer. The common theme in all of this really is if you, I mean, if you return to the, you know, to the thread that began this, is that there's a certain kind of rigidity in certain positions that we take on in beliefs, perspectives, opinions. And that rigidity in the, you know, if you wanted to get very mechanical about what the effect of the psychedelic experience is, that rigidity is the thing that comes under the greatest pressure in the psychedelic experience. And I think it is unavoidable that almost anybody who writes in this, you know, they are, they are, um, you know, they are profoundly impressed by, by the power of the psychedelic experience, by just how radical a departure sometimes it presents from human consciousness. I mean, after all, we are constantly changing our consciousness during the day, right? I mean, this is a very, it's a very fluctuating kind of, you know, our sensory field, our phenomenal field, our affective field is changing every single second of the day and we are changing it, you know, like, I mean, this morning I went and climbed something which was a little, you know, a little bit out of my difficulty range, just a teensy bit. And I was in a whole new mental space, man, on that rock. It was, it was fucking amazing. There's no other way to describe it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what the psychedelic experience does precisely because it is so powerful is that it, it, it teaches you the tenuousness of the original positions you were holding. So it's not just that it disrupts those positions. It teaches you that there is a fundamental tenuousness to any position that you can take on, right? So, you know, I think that's why, you know, when sometimes people make these connections between the psychedelic experience and sort of various Eastern philosophies, I think Alan Watts is a prime example of this. You know, someone who I think, you know, in the 60s, you know, he, you know, he was a, he was a, you know, expert psychonaut himself. And he was a, you know, he, he was a scholar. And I think his, I think those two things fed into each other. I think he found insights in Eastern philosophies that I think, you know, are there to be found in terms of cosmic unity, cosmic wholeness and oneness. These metaphors are, you know, they're, they're not just metaphors, they're parts of these teachings. And they have a great deal to do with states of consciousness that are attained during intense, uh, you know, states of mindfulness and meditation, that are aiming in many ways for certain states of ego dissolution, which people find in the psychedelic experience. So it's not surprising that the insights that people have are, you know, can communicate with each other or that people on the two sides of this divide have found, um, you know, a language with which to um, inform those two, you know, with these kinds of influences. And I think Watts is a class classic example of that. But I think once again, to get back to the point about therapy and rigidity and why it has therapeutic potential, it's precisely because these sorts of things represent perspectival departures and reminders that states of consciousness are fragile, states of consciousness are, you know, transient, that they represent, even if you use, and I think that's the amazing thing about the psychedelic experience. Let's say that you're a hardcore materialist, right? You're a physicalist. You're not even talking about anything that's, you know, if you want to be all like, oh, no spirituality, no spookiness. I mean, even for the hardcore materialist, what is it telling us? It's telling us that we are physical beings 
a biochemical soup, right? I mean, that's what the physicalist wants us to believe. Sure, I'll go with you. We're a biochemical soup. Consciousness is a chemical phenomenon. I'm with you, physicalist, or right on board, buddy. I'm still going with you. But what that means is that there is a chemical equilibrium between this biochemical soup and the rest of the physical world outside. And that interaction is my consciousness. And that thing is so fragile and such a beautiful, sensitive, constructed equilibrium that I took the drop of this tiny chemical and I dropped it in there. And lo and behold, that physical relationship changed and we had a completely different state of consciousness. And there are many others, as we all know, thanks to our changing states of mind during the day. So I think becoming aware that we are just such, you know, creatures in flux, it makes our cognitive rigidity seem a little silly. You know, I think many folks when they return from trips are kind of mortified that they held on to some beliefs so strongly, right? They're because they've because they've received such a buffeting. You know, for example, you hold the beliefs about yourself. You know, like oh, I was. I was silly to think that in the first of a place or, 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 or sometimes you become aware that in fact, the psychedelic experience is clearing away a certain kind of cognitive clutter and opening the door to other kinds of experiences to come in. So there's this kind of door, right? Which you've been keeping blocked and there's a kind of a sweeping away just to kind of a making room and these new experiences can come in and be experienced. And I think that's very useful for thinking about folks that are struggling with issues like self-esteem, right? Uh, and are very, and I think are dealing with a constant inner monologue, which is, you know, which is self-destructive, which is pathological. And it's a very, and, and, and I would call, and I would call it a monologue that essentially crowds out other kinds of dialogues that we can have with ourselves. Right. Right. And, and I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is also founded in fear. So when you talk about those core beliefs of, you know, I'm useless, I'm worthless, et cetera, a lot yeah. of times there's usually plenty of evidence, you know, to the contrary, but the person who believes in it, well, first of all, there's obviously black and white thinking, but then yeah. the other thing is it's founded in fear. It's what if, right? What if yeah. I actually accept the evidence? What if I reframe my belief? What if I start thinking of myself differently? What if I start putting myself out there? What if that person who I'm sure is never going to want to go out with me, who, even though they say they will, what if I actually sort of give them a date, right? What if, if I then look stupid? What if I'm then even more ashamed than I feel now? So there's like, deep anxiety. Well, yeah. There's a deep right, anxiety at right. every level of this. Yeah. yeah. However, imagine if the doors of perception were cleansed in the sense that maybe you wouldn't imagine those thoughts were not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you had the mental resources to have other thoughts mm -hmm. or even no thoughts, perhaps. Maybe then it's more peaceful. It depends. Because I, I have this distinction I like to make between, you know, the, there's a time to brainstorm and to critically think mm -hmm, and to mm -hmm. have a sort of inner monologue. Mm -hmm. and there's sure. other times where you don't want that. You may want peace and quiet. You, you may sure. not want that ruminating uh, yeah. dialogue to even have a place in your life. Well, I think, that, I, I, think that, I think that corresponds precisely to stages of the psychedelic experience where you have the so-called maelstrom, right? And then you have, you know, the so-called, you know, the so-called coming down where in fact, it's almost as if you are physically and mentally exhausted by what you have experienced. And in fact, you know, to use the yogic term, you know, when you do the Shavasana at the end of, you know, when you lie flat on your back and you have the corpse pose, there is a moment when to all you should be doing is just taking it on board, feeling and not necessarily cognizing it excessively. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the exact opposite of a brainstorm, um, mm -hmm. you know, a kind of, um, 
kind of a brain sleep or a brain chillax or, you know, I, I don't know what the right word for it would be in this sense. A, a certain settling down to a more quiescent state and to begin to process the thoughts and disruptions that you went through just just before and to start to begin slowly that process of, you know, trying to understand what you've just undergone. Right. It's kind of as though as, as you're backing away from your ego, you're also backing away from the affect. So like in this case, it's anxiety. And as you're backing away from the anxiety, then with a clearer mind, you can actually look at everything that's happened in your life and ask yourself, okay, does my life really indicate all of these shit things that I believe about myself? Do yeah. all of these people really hate me? Or is it that it's kind of like my core belief informing my assumptions about them, kind of the way they see me, the way they're interacting with me? Or is it that they've tried to tell me that, you know, I was wrong, but I just didn't want to listen to it? Or mm -hmm. maybe yeah. I was too afraid to listen to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, you know, and I think that's precisely why uh, some aspects of this can be frightening for people because, uh, you know, very often affects run quite close to their contraries. And, uh, you know, so fear can turn to ecstasy and ecstasy can turn to fear. You know, you see something unfamiliar and beautiful and it can be cause for, can be cause for, you know, ecstatic reaction. It can be cause for something that can make you deeply anxious and, and you know, fearful as well. And I think it's that it's that sensitivity that makes the experience the kind of thing which I think which is precisely why people have guides, um, they have shamans, they have in the modern therapeutic setting therapists or counselors or um, clinicians, um, you know, people who can be people who can be experienced in you know in the in the chemical sense and also in some ways be guides for the journey or you know prompt certain kinds of explorations. And, you know, I mean, I'm kind of, I, I, I really do think that the potential here is just kind of amazing. It's just, you know, it's amazing that you've been bringing up these examples from, you know, from therapeutic practice mm -hmm. of talking about, you know, certain kinds of interactions that you have in that clinical space. And, and, and it's amazing because as you keep bringing them up and you're bringing them up in the context of this conversation, their connection with, or their potential for psychedelic intervention just becomes so clear, right? Mm -hmm. Once, you know, because so many times in the therapeutic setting, what you are talking about is a certain kind of cognitive rigidity, right? Uh, and that's not to understand it as a pathology. It's to understand it maybe in some ways as a perfectly good strategy that has worked for people in the past. And, you know, right, it's protection. I, yeah, you know, I had to have beliefs of this kind, right? And, you know, um, and then that's a very classic instance. Or in some ways, you know, because a certain kind of relationship between belief and affect has gone wrong. Um, and I think in each of these cases, what we're really talking about are a variety of substances with a variety of effects, which have, by virtue of their, um, by virtue of their physical interaction with the architecture of our, you know, of our cognitive apparatus, have the ability to introduce these changes in our consciousness, which make us question, first of all, I think the conventional nature of our consciousness, you know, the agreed upon experience that we are all having. And I think secondly, to visit points of departure from it and to use those points as, of departure as ways of re-understanding ourselves. And, you know, when we think about it, all the therapeutic experiences that we are seeking, whether they're religious, whether they're intellectual, whether they are, you know, physically induced by running and climbing and skiing and or whether it's the counseling experiences that we seek in each of these experiences, we're really seeking ways to reconfigure ourselves cognitively where we are seeking ways to, to think differently. We want to think differently, right? 
So when we go in with that open mind and we say, look, you know, I'm going to read this book because I want to learn something or I want to have this experience because I want to feel something different. And as a result, think something differently or I'm going into counseling. I think that openness is precisely the openness that's present in these experiences. So we shouldn't be surprised when these kinds of experiences are informed by these substances. Um, mm. You know, and I think they represent a kind of a natural, a kind of a natural point or a natural locus of the way in which we have used the outside world to guide us in our interactions with it. You know, it's not surprising that once, you know, cultures all over the world discovered these substances, uh, you know, whatever they were, you know, tobacco, alcohol, you know, anything that would, that would modify our consciousness because they fitted in seamlessly into a kind of a continuum of ways in which we are constantly changing the way we, um, you know, the way we perceive ourselves and others. Um, so I think, you know, when, you know, to bring it back to where this conversation started, you know, we were talking about philosophy, um, therapy and psychedelics, right? I mean, that's the kind of triangle, right? In some sense. And the triangle I think is, is philosophy is a form of therapy. Philosophy is a kind of therapeutic inter intervention and therapeutic interventions are guided, aided and abetted by these tools and substances that help us change and modify consciousness. And philosophy is an investigation into the nature of being and the nature of reality and these tools and substances by altering our consciousness, by altering our mind, mm -hmm. which is how we study reality. They teach us something about the relationship between our mind and reality. So I think the triangle is really, you know, it's a kind of a wondrous triangle and it's a very, you know, it's a very fundamental and foundational triangle of human experience. Right. And I think, and I think that it's all mind. If you kind of think about it, when we're talking about cognitive reframing and yeah. there's also a form of therapy called exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the idea is that these two are sort of, um, they're sort of disparate and they're kind of placed against one another. And the idea is like, well, you can have kind of exposure therapy where like, let's say with trauma, you know, you sort of keep talking about it over and over again and eventually you stop caring. Um, and then let's say if you're afraid of spiders or whatever, you know, you kind of see a spider over and over again and you stop mm -hmm. caring, but it's all cognitive. It's all mine because even though, even when whether, so whether uh, the therapist is proving to you sort of through philosophical argumentation that something is wrong or whether you're kind of experiencing it yourself one way or another, right? Or even if it's a psychedelic experience where you're learning of something new, the experience is a form of learning. Either way, it's all founded within your ways of seeing yourself, seeing the world, seeing yeah. other people. It all comes back to mind in the end because with the, even when we're talking about exposure therapy, exposure therapy is only important because you have a brain that can think. If you can't process what you're learning in the experience, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's all irrelevant. There's well, nothing to expose uh, you to. Exposure therapy is, is sort of presuming a certain kind of cognitive architecture. It is, it, is, it, is, it is presuming that you change and that you learn, you change your beliefs and you, and you learn in particular ways. I mean, it wouldn't work without those kind of cognitive assumptions. And I think, you know, when you, when you think of the, the mental illnesses or the so-called mental disorders, the so-called mental health disorders, I, I don't think it's uh, that, you know, others other than those for which we have found that, you know, and, and these are very, there's a vanishingly small number of mental disorders that have physical correlates. Mm -hmm. You know, the rest of these are essentially being treated quite blindly. Um, if you think of the fact that what you're essentially getting is this very powerful kind of, you know, it's a, it's a pharmaceutical, I would say in some ways, you know, you can, you can, you can think of it as a pharmaceutical, but I think it's, it's a pharmaceutical that's interesting precisely because the effects it has are not to be understood just in terms of physical changes, but in terms of 
changing your interpretation of your beliefs or changing your beliefs or changing the emotional affects of beliefs and then helping you process that. So there is a sense in which, yes, there is a pharmaceutical, 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 pharmaceutical intervention of a cognitive therapy. And I think that's the, and I think that's the kind of, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I mean, that's true of the relationship between psychiatry and psychotherapy, where even if you're taking medications, you're supposed to be in talk therapy that, you know, as a way of helping you understand. And I think that's how good therapy would proceed. Um, and I think the therapist who works with medications at that time could be, you know, could come from a variety of modalities. You know, I think, uh, you know, um, I have a, I have a psychiatrist friend and, you know, we have this understanding that if he thinks there are people who could benefit from philosophical counseling that, you know, I could work with his patients, right. As you know, he, he could, he could recommend me as someone who could help um, his patients talk through the, the effects that the, that the medication is happening on them. And I think, and I think, psychedelics would fit in quite nicely into this space because the idea would be that you could take it in a variety of clinical settings, but it's not just giving you the chemical and, you know, you're sort of sent on your own way to go ahead and, you know, have the psychedelic experience. You know, it's more that you're there and you are counseled and that you, and that you build a set of interpretations around the experience to help you understand it and to help you understand yourself better. Okay. And, and just and to be, just to be so, so, so. common theme, uh, set and setting always, right? Uh, yes, yes. Structuring that is so important for the psychedelic experience mm -hmm. because without yep. an intent or just letting it just roam free, some again, yep. it can it can be good, but the potential for disaster is also great. Yeah, there's a high probability. That so guiding yeah. it in a certain way is is paramount to having a very successful experience right. with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and also I just uh, yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say the way ayahuasca ceremonies are framed—that you bring questions for the mother—I mm -hmm. think is a really good way to think about it. That yeah, that's so interesting. You have come seeking an audience mm -hmm. with the mother, right? When you come seeking an audience, speak your mind. What is in your mind? What is it you wish to speak about? You can't just say, "Oh, I'm here to, <laughs> I'm here to see the mother." No, you're here to see the mother for some reason, right? Mm -hmm. What's in your mind, right? And the moment you think about that, it forces immediately that, that introspective impulse. Why am I doing this? Right. And if you start thinking in that line when you are on ayahuasca, well, then I think you are down the path that you need to be going, right. which is questioning yourself and asking yourself, what has brought you here? And you will find that there is something that has brought you there, something quite particular. Right. right. And, and, and just... Right. And just to be clear for our audience, so we're definitely not recommending that anybody take psychedelics on their own because so, yeah. I mean, not regardless, um, regarding like what sort of medications you're taking, there could be some really sort of toxic interaction. Yeah. And then the other thing is if your family history, if you have a family history of any sort of psychosis, schizophrenia, delusional disorder, any of that, which you probably don't even know of because most people do not know their family history of mental illness. It could actually induce a psychotic break, which will turn into a psychiatric, psychiatric and then a psychotic disorder. As Formal well. disclaimer for the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we just <laughs> yeah. want to be clear. And also, and, and, and also, let's not forget that the, that the legality of these substances is quite a dubious matter in many jurisdictions. So, right. And, you know, I think, I think that's the amazing thing about this because the, you know, because the legality of these substances, you know, they're still illegal. Right. And yet the cultural moment is, is, is such that we're having conferences on psychedelics all the time and psychia, you know, I mean, the, the journal of psychiatry is publishing papers on, you know, psilocybin. And so I think there's a kind of a, there's an interesting cultural discordance here about, 
the continued illegality and the and the actual cultural moment that we're having Right. And I mean, we can even talk about the preliminary studies because they, I mean, outside of kind of ketamine, which just, I mean, no, we're not really talking about ketamine, but just FYI, it kind of has been working like a placebo as far as like what I know and what other researchers have shown, where it's like it yeah. kind of does this uptick and then after a little bit, it sort of goes back down and you're sort of depressed again. Um, but with like other medications, right? Whatever medications, with um, what I think psilocybin and then I think the other one was peyote. So there's actually been some really interesting research, preliminary research into its effects on depression. Uh, the cessation of smoking, I think anxiety of various sorts, whether social, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, social general, and then I think some other things too. So, I mean, obviously we need more broader sort of, you know, long-term studies, but the idea is what's so interesting is that right now they're actually showing, again, preliminary studies, but what they're showing is that some of these, like, you know, they work better than medications. So that's really, yeah, really, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think uh, without the, without many of the side effects that make people so uncomfortable with many of the antipsychotic, antidepressant medications, without many of the dependency problems, I think that's very, very interesting. I mean, when you think about a large part of the reason why sometimes people don't want to get in these medications is because, you know, they, they're worried about personality changes that are quite upsetting for them. They're quite upset about side effects. Um, and as a result, family around it is often not comfortable with the medications. So I think this, uh, the, the potential that we're looking at for these possible episodic treatments and with, you know, which could be outpatient or, you know, just like you go in for the afternoon, right? Um, you know, Vice had a very interesting um, special where one of their correspondents who had worked as a war correspondent in, in several war zones, he was reporting a form of PTSD. Uh, from just having been sent to these war zones again, again and again, and you know, exposed to shelling, seeing dead bodies, seeing killings, and you know, this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, they showed a couple of his um, his MDMA sessions because it was being used to treat war veterans as well, um, helping them deal with some of their traumatic past. And yeah, it was a very interesting episode. And you know, like I said, um, NYU is having a conference every October, um, which is a two-day conference. I think uh, I'm not sure if they're going to have it this year, but it's a it's a fairly fairly extensive and a very serious conference. And, you know, John Hopkins has a research program now on uh, psychedelics and psychiatry. There's a special interest group within the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, so I think the medical establishment is, or at least portions of it are getting up and getting on board. And I think, you know, what really needs to happen down the line is that if this is really going to become a research program, then I think the legal barriers really need to be you know, uh, need to be sort of reworked so that in fact we can have, I think what we really need to have is this kind of explosion of, you know, papers published that will corroborate and, you know, you know, confirm these studies and actually lead to larger um, research trials being launched. Absolutely. I mean, that at least is my, you know, is my formal hope on, mm -hmm. the, on the political legal front, you know. Yeah. Yeah, because as as you know, having had a psychedelic experience, it it is incredibly profound. A lot of people, anecdotally, have said it's in their top five most meaningful experiences they've ever experienced in their life. Yeah, uh, the again that that ego dissolution, or let's put it this way, uh, you could make an argument that the ego is the uh, the root for almost all conflict that we've mm -hmm. seen in the world, and. Imagine having access to something that uh, dissolves that that false entity, right? And, and mm -hmm. allows for for connection and uh, for brotherhood, for compassion. And if yeah. that were something that 
more people were taking, I wonder what kind of shift that would cause uh, in, in society if, if more people were experiencing and having that sort of experience. Right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's the, that thought that you're expressing, that's always been the dream at the heart of, you know, you know, you know, the, the, you know, all those folks who were sticking, you know, flowers into, you know, gun battles in a way they were expressing that hope that when you find out that, you know, you know, that the way in which people sort of mock the hippies, Hey man, we're all one, uh, that there was actually something quite deep at the heart of all of that. And there was, even if you realize that the ego that you have is something that you need in order for social existence, the fact that you were able to step out of that once and to see, okay, this thing is this kind of temporary conventional thing that I kind of put together to maintain my social sense of identity. And, you know, I have all these relationships and all that kind of stuff and people have given me a name and all that. But once you just get that slight distance from it, maybe you take on, you know, a little bit of, you know, what, you know, Dylan called the Joker perspective. It's, it's all good. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a, little bit of a cosmic joke, right? That we take ourselves so seriously. And once you just get that little wink going on the side, right? And I think that's why so much of psychedelic art involves that jester or that joker perspective, because you realize that this is all a little bit of a joke. You being so puffed up with this ego and this whole sort of the pretension, right? And that, and that just falls apart. Yeah. And when you realize it, you know, that this balloon can be punctured, it, it gives you a different relationship to that balloon. And I think that's what you, you know, we, we might not be able to keep that sense of ego dissolution with us all the time, right? But having known that this thing, when, you know, when you pull back the curtain, you're like, oh man, I pulled back the curtain once. There wasn't anything there, right? Mm-hmm. You just don't take it that seriously from that point onwards. Absolutely. Man, such a great discussion. All right, Alan. Final questions for Samir before we go. Oh, uh, yes, Samir. Uh, do you have anything to promote? Oh, uh, <laughs> no. I uh, well, I'm I'm working on my book on anxiety, and mm-hmm. uh, which you know I hope to finish by next year. A philosophical guide to anxiety, and it's interesting that I think some of these conversations will play a role in in that book. Um, I've also just written an essay on anxiety for the magazine Psyche, mm-hmm. which is a sister magazine for Eon, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm trying to talk a little bit about the relationship of anxiety to basic philosophical inquiry, you know, suggesting that, um, you know, philosophical inquiries sparked by a certain kind of anxiety Excellent. to get the right answer as well. All right. Yeah. So, you know, other than that, yeah, nothing to promote except my, yeah, my, the writing that I'm working on. Oh, I was hoping also, sorry, uh, to ask uh, where we could follow you on, uh, on social media Which as well. Question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. 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 So, uh, all my writing and all my writings on these subjects and many others, they're all available at my website, samirchopra.com, which is mm-hmm. my blog, and my repository of writing. And on social media, uh, you know, I'm on, I have a, I have a blog page on Facebook, just Samir Chopra as well. And on Twitter, I'm Chopra counselor and I on the pitch. Awesome. And you guys have very kindly, you know, um, passed on my work to other people. So thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. Thanks, guys. This was a great, great conversation. Yep. I had a lot of fun today, and I'm looking forward to this going online. Yeah, this is one of my favorite <laughs> episodes. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Slater. Talk soon. All right, guys. Bye for now. Bye. <laughs> Bye. 
All right. That was awesome. That was dope. That was, awesome. that was really dope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, of course, thanks for watching. If you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at uh, to, on Twitter at Seize underscore podcast. And also you can follow us at O4L Online. Yeah, so the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us under the STM podcast section. All right. Well, guys, thanks again for watching and see you guys next time.